Hi, I'm Rebecca Minkoff, and you're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is the founder of Beauty Counter, Greg Renfrow. What I love about what she's doing is she's really shifting the dialogue to make sure that what women are putting on their bodies and on their children is safe and non-toxic. There are a lot of laws regarding the cosmetics industry that haven't been updated for almost 100 years. And she said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to change it. And she's putting her money where her mouth is. She really helps to lobby on the hill to get some of these laws changed so that what we're putting on our skin isn't going to cause us to get sick later. Take a listen to Greg on Superwomen. Today I'm with Greg Renfrew, the Beauty Counter founder and CEO. Hi. How are you, Rebecca? Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I just rubbed your baby oil all over my baby before I got here this morning. So, Oh, good to know that. Yes. That's exciting. Yes. So I actually first became aware of Beauty Counter when my good friend Beth Reesgraf was telling me about it. She's one of your, I don't know if the right term is uh, seller consultants. or consultants. And I fell in love with the product. And then when I began to do research, um, I was shocked that what you're doing is so unique. And I would love to hear a little bit about why you founded Beauty Counter and what made some of its ideals really important to you. I started Beauty Counter, uh, well, it kind of goes back a long way. So in 2006, I watched this film called An Inconvenient Truth and really became impassioned with the environmental health movement. And subsequent to seeing that film, I was living in New York City. I was a new mom, and I was watching all these friends around me being diagnosed with different types of cancer, both women and men in their 30s. I looked at a lot of my friends who were struggling with fertility issues, others who were giving birth to children with significant health issues, whether that was, you know, asthma or severe allergies, et cetera, et cetera. And I started to think that something had gone awry and started to do research and over the, you know, next couple of years came to learn that we had, you know, introduced, you know, that we had not, you know, changed laws governing our industry, um, our, the beauty industry. So I learned a lot. Sorry, I should, I should backtrack. I, I learned a lot. And so I started to make a lot of changes in my life. You know, I could change out my Teflon pans and get to non, you know, to stainless steel again. I could get rid of plastic and choose glass. I could, could take my shoes off at the door by, you know, seventh generation cleaning products. But when it came to skincare and cosmetics, I came to learn that we had no regulation over this industry, that they laws dated back 80 years and that there were, you know, over a thousand chemicals that were banned or restricted in the EU and only at the time 11 had been banned in the U.S. And I started to wonder what was in our products. I started seeking safer alternatives and really couldn't find anything that met my needs as a woman. I could find all of the traditional brands that we've all known and loved over the years. And they were, you know, they were aspirational, chic, on trend. You know, they performed really well, but they, they were filled with all these chemicals that I learned were, you know, harmful to the earth, harmful to my health, and banned or restricted in other countries. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there were all these very eco, earthy, crunchy brands that didn't really meet my needs. You know, living in New York, working in and out of the fashion industry, I wanted a great product and I wanted to be safe. And so I started the company to really bring high-performing and significantly safer products into the market and to focus on educating the consumer because, you know, most people still don't know that there are harmful ingredients in the products that they use every day. And also to not just build great products, but to build a business that's more like a movement that spends a lot of time, you know, advocating for, you know, updated laws and, and more health protective legislation. When you set out to do that, were you at all overwhelmed with how to get like how you even could get started and and how you even began to approach the first formulations or even where to do that so 
I mean, you're an entrepreneur, so you understand that you know it takes a certain level of dedication, grit, drive, and resourcefulness. I mean, I I didn't come from the beauty industry, right? My background was right. in you know in the consumer market, and I you know dabbled in you know wedding registry and, and sort of home decorative and in fashion. So I knew nothing about the beauty industry. In fact, I didn't really even wear that many you know beauty products, and so you know it was one of those things where I wasn't necessarily overwhelmed, but you know, it took, you know, I would call my one friend who worked at L'Oreal and I was like, could you point me in the right direction of someone else? And so slowly but surely I started to chip away at um, the things that I needed to chip away at to understand how to build the business. And I think it wasn't, I think it wasn't so overwhelming as it was just, it was just challenging. You know, I started focusing first on how are we going to create these products and called, you know, shamelessly, and you probably did the same thing, you know, shamelessly called everyone I knew that could help me and asked them for help. And that got me going on the product standpoint, but then also I didn't know anything about direct sales. I didn't know anything about, you know, technology. And so I, you know, I slowly but surely chipped away at it and finally, you know, over two year period got, you know, got products ready, got a business done ready, raised some capital and, and was ready to bring these products into the market. And so when you began to raise capital, did you encounter um, pushback or people not understanding why clean beauty would be important? Or did people say, yeah. yes, there's a white space here. Is This is going to be great. You know, in terms of raising capital, I think that, you know, for Beauty Counter, it, was, it wasn't as hard to raise capital this time around as it was, my, you know, my first time around with the wedding list. It was almost impossible to get any man to listen to me when I was talking about the wedding industry, even though it's a $35 billion industry, or it certainly was at the time. And, you know, the, the trying to, to tell them that the convenience of online purchasing and all this, I mean, people just thought I was crazy. I think what was more challenging this time around was not actually getting capital because I think I was a proven business person at this point in time. And I think people had started to like hear a little bit about clean products or they at least had, we could draft off the food movement and say, look, this is also coming. I think what was much harder for me was, was actually getting the contract manufacturers, the suppliers of ingredients, the press to actually acknowledge. People thought I was crazy. And that was harder because no one wanted to make the products because I was asking them to create the same level of performance minus 1,500 plus ingredients. And that was, was really, really hard to get people to take that leap of faith. And I kept saying, I promise you there's an opportunity here. I promise you there's a market here. Just take this leap of faith with me. That was much harder for me than actually getting the capital. And so in taking that leap of faith and developing formulations and and the product and taking out, I think you said, a thousand plus chemicals, how did you approach that in terms of the little that I know about, you know, ingredients within beauty is, you know, things need to be shelf stable and, you know, not separate and, you know, a lot of organic things can sometimes, you know, do that, I guess, more easily. So how did you, did it take a lot of research and a lot of just trial and error to get it right for each product? Absolutely. You know, it's a really complicated process creating PD products. <laughs> really, I mean, it, you know, people always ask you, like, you know, what's your biggest regret? I probably should say getting into this industry in the first <laughs> place because you know it's so much easier to make a sweater than it is to, to do this. Um, I think that you know we have been really consistent and clear in terms of our messaging and our brand promise to the consumer, which is that we focus on safety of ingredients and performance. And so we're not, you know, 100% all natural. We're about 85% natural ingredients, but we do use some man-made ingredients that we think are safe for health and safe for the earth. And trying to figure out how to 
um, put those ingredients into into formulations that truly perform and are also safe for health and good, to, you know, good to the environment, has been an incredibly challenging process and has taken a huge team of people, uh, you know, researchers, chemists, you know, green chemists, makeup artists, skincare specialists. Product development people, it's, it's been, it's been difficult. And, you know, the contract manufacturers that we work with, um, you know, outside of our own lab always call us brutal counter because we'll go through, <laughs> you know, hundreds of submissions, whereas someone in a more traditional, you know, brand that is one of, you know, the, the ones that's not seeking safer ingredients, I mean, they can do four or five submissions of a product and be done, whereas we may have, literally may have four or five hundred. And it's very difficult for us to, to serve our consumer because she has an expectation of performance and to deliver that with safer ingredients is not easy. So it it takes a village to say the least. So I'm probably preaching to the choir, but right now health is so important to women, you know, whether it's working out or organic or gluten-free, like whatever it is, non-GMO. Why do you think these same women are still willing to put suspect things on their faces or on their bodies? I think there, I think there are two different things that are, that, that are, that are true. One is that most people still have absolutely no idea that there are harmful chemicals in the products that they're using every day. And that is, and you always have the naysayers who say, oh, well, you're just trying to scare people or you'll have them go to their dermatologist who may say, oh, it's fine to use these ingredients because they're really paid on performance, right? That they're, they're paid to make you look younger and better and healthier. And they're not always aligned with the safety. Um, so I think there's, there's just a miss, you know, misconception and misperception in the industry about, you know, what ingredients are safe. You know, they're, they're lied to all the time by brands who, because of the lack of regulation, are able to claim that they're organic or preservative-free or non-toxic when they very well may be none of the above. So I think there's, so there's an education, you know, an awareness issue that we're trying to change by trying to let people know as, as much as possible like, that they should take charge of the ingredients that they're putting on their bodies. And so we're trying to help that effort across all brands and across the industry. And I think the second thing is that there's just, and you know this, there's just an incredible amount of pressure on women to be perfect and to right. be, you know, absolutely beautiful and to look younger and to be skinny and to be this. I mean, there's just, there's just such pressure on women. I always say like the models don't even look like the models. You and I both know this. You look at a, a supermodel in real life and she never looks like she does in the pictures on the magazine ad or whatever. And I think that people are holding us to a standard that's, that's not achievable. I think I'm really thrilled to see that there is an increased sort of um, awareness, but also um, support of women who are all different types of women, shapes and sizes and skin tones. And I think we're starting to move in that direction. But I think that we all, you know, have historically have been programmed to think we're not good enough. And so when you, you know, when you're getting older and you see that first wrinkle on your face or whatever, you know, the immediate answer is I have to cover this up as opposed to owning it and saying, you know, I am who I am and I am this age and I'm proud of who I am. And I think that women have you know, utilize cosmetics in particular to make, you know, to sort of, you know, gain self-confidence and to make them feel prettier and, you know, more attractive to the world when, when they honestly look amazing just the way that they are. And um, I think that's just a, a cultural and societal thing that hopefully will shift over time. It needs to, man. I keep seeing all these caked up faces sure. and these, I'm like, gosh, you just look so much older with all this crap on your face. You know, I agree, and I have a lot of my friends who are always like, oh, well, you have some wrinkles on your face. Like, you should really, you know, get rid of them. And I can I, I say, no, but I think I actually look better this way than I would if I, you know, used some ridiculous measures to get rid of my <laughs> wrinkles. Like, I, I actually think you look worse. But, right. you know, that's, that's a personal choice. You totally. know? But for me, whatever. I mean, I always say I can get more bangs. 
Love that. But, you know, sometimes you'll see me and I'll look like Anna Wintour because my bangs are going to be across <laughs> my forehead to hide all my wrinkles. But, you know, better that than something else. Totally. So you have established a, when you, you did, you did create a move made in that you have 40,000 women, you know, selling your product every day. How did you know that that was the right way to do this? And then how did you go about building an army? Cause you really have an army. Yeah. So it's interesting. So I, knowing that we were bringing products into the market that were uh, going to go up against the incumbents, right? They were going to go up all against all the traditional brands um, knowing that department store distribution of beauty products in particular was waning and that the direct-to-consumer model was evolving, I really struggled to to think about, you know, going into these stores. And, you know, I knew all of those people because I worked with all those people in the department stores. It would have been much easier to call, I don't know, the CEO of Nordstrom and Neiman Marcus at the time because I already knew, knew those people. But I kept thinking, you know, I kept saying to myself, this story is best told person to person. We as women like to share important information with our friends and our family. And I knew we needed to have an e-commerce platform. Obviously, everyone was buying online. But I also knew it was challenging for people to buy cosmetics and skincare products online. It's really easy for them to replenish online, but it's more difficult for them to, to make that initial leap of faith and purchase that first product. And it's getting better. Again, this goes back seven years. So a friend of mine said, have you considered direct sales? And I literally said, Direct sales? No. I mean, I, I knew nothing about it, and whatever I did know about it was not, I didn't have a favorable impression of the industry. But I started to look at some of these companies, and I thought, well, this is interesting. How can we use women to build a movement? You know, women do move markets. Women are the ones that, you know, start things like MAD, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, and women are the ones that fight hard for seatbelt laws or for a whole different type, you know, whatever it is that women become passionate about. If they march together, so to speak, they can actually make huge difference in the world. And so I started to look at direct sales and I thought, okay, this is a really interesting way. We can build a movement with these people. And by the way, we can have them educate their friends because they love to share this information. And by the way, we can actually create economic opportunities. And how do we allow someone the opportunity to build a business that's financially rewarding that also allows her to be part of meaningful change and to educate the people that she loves about safer ingredients. And it just felt like the right business model for our company. And it's it's not to say that we did it in the traditional sense in that I do think that we've been able to do things differently by having our own stores or pop-ups or partnering with other brands or, you know, having a true e-commerce business. But it has been really amazing to see how we've created tens of thousands of jobs and how women have really been thriving both in confidence economically and also just in their health by being part of this movement. So you have uh, been to Washington a lot to help on regulation and bringing regulation to the cosmetics industry. What um, what was that like? And what is it like when you feel like you might be beating your head up against a wall of men? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I, 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 I didn't know much about Washington prior to PD Counter. Um, you know, I knew it like any person might know it, but not in terms of actually having dealt with politicians in that whole world. You know, it's been interesting to me. I mean, I think the thing that has been both exciting and also incredibly frustrating, the, the exciting side of it has been to, is, is that I've realized that your voice does make a difference and that one person can actually make a difference in Washington and can affect change all the way down to laws. So I do think when you think of democracy, I do think that we should all be focused on participating in our democracy, whether that is picking up the phone when you have something to say to your local member of Congress or, you know, voting. Those are privileges that we are afforded in this country that I think not enough people take advantage of. And I think that 
it's both our opportunity and our responsibility. And I do know, you know, when you go into these offices of the senators or whatever, that they that they do take these calls and they have to and they, they document them. And so if they, you know, if they get 15 calls in a day, as an example, on a certain subject matter, like they're going to, they know that they need to serve their constituents and they, they start to focus on these issues. So that's the exciting side of it and the fun part of it. The, the disappointing part of it for me is that there is, and it's not just a, a Democratic Republican kind of issue. It's just that there's so many differences of opinion and getting to get members on both sides of the aisle to agree on an outcome can be very challenging and very frustrating. And especially when it comes to something around cosmetics, because you're right, there are more times than not, there are men in power who don't even understand that the cosmetics is not only, it's not about makeup, it's about their shave cream, their deodorant, their bubble bath and their sunscreen. And also it's impacting their daughters and their mothers and their sisters. And so getting people to kind of check their egos at the door and and actually do the right thing for the consumer can be frustrating at times. What do you think would have to happen for these laws to change? Because it actually is shocking that, you know, the, the decisions of some of these ingredients and the potential dangers of them going into mostly women's bodies. Do you think it would take 10 companies like yours or or you you have to go up against, the, you know, the lobbyists who work on behalf of the people that make these toxic chemicals or like, I guess I'm just trying to understand, like, it it's mind blowing that this could this could still be going on. I think at the end of the day, uh, there are companies talking about this large and small. I, I don't think it's so much about the chemical companies lobbying. I mean, I'm sure that they are. There are definitely people who go against everything that I stand for. But I think the biggest issue truly right now is on this state preemption. Does a state like California that has passed Prop 65, which is much more focused on protecting the consumer than other states, do they get the final say on whether or not an ingredient is safe for human health or does the FDA? And is the FDA actually empowered to make a decision and to recall a product? And, and, there, and that's where we keep, that's where, that's exactly where it's come to a grinding halt. Who gets that final say? And I think how to solve that, I'm not sure, which is why we haven't yet. I think that, you know, I think that if the, both, if the Republicans and Democrats could both just move a little and create an environment where states could have more power, but within reason, and the federal government would have more power, but within reason, I think there's a, there's a middle ground there, but I don't know that I myself am going to be the one to solve that. Right. But the one thing that's also interesting is that there there is bipartisan support of this initiative. Like, everyone agrees that the cosmetics laws need to change. It's just how they change that they're not agreeing on right now. Right. If a woman wants to start making, you know, a listener wants to start making changes to her beauty routine, what are things that she can look for that put her on a more healthy lifestyle with her beauty ingredients? Other than, of course, she's going to get from beauty yeah. counter, but if she can't. Of course. No, of course. I mean, I always say our mission is to get safer products into the hands of everyone, not to get beauty counter products into the hands of everyone, because I know that our products are not accessible to everyone. And so, um, so a couple of things I think that people can do. I mean, first of all, I always say our product is beauty, but the lifestyle that we sell is clean. And so I always say the most inexpensive thing that anyone can do to remove toxic chemicals is to take their shoes off at the door. I know it's not a beauty thing, but that in and of itself removes so many of the toxic chemicals from people's homes that it's a good start. I think in terms of 
You know, there are lots of ways you can make your own products and you can buy products. You know, the first and foremost, I would say, as you shop the market, always shop fragrance-free because so many, many of the most offensive chemicals, the most harmful chemicals are found in fragrance and people don't know that. And because of international IP law, companies do not need to disclose the ingredients that they put into fragrance. So always shop the market fragrance-free. I would look at the Environmental Working Group's Skin Deep database and or our Never List, which you can download and use that to shop the market so you can look for ingredients that are harmful. And I always say, you you know, you know, if, if you have to make a choice of prioritization, if you're, you know, if you have a certain amount of money that you can spend on it, I think that products that's the leave-on products, products like body lotion or sunscreen that go head-to-toe on your body and stay on versus a conditioner in your hair that rinses off, those are the things that I would prioritize. And if your budget is constrained, you know, a good way to start is just literally using a jar of organic coconut oil. You don't need to go buy fancy lotions or products. To, you know, you can use olive oil. You can use sugar to create scrubs. There are things you can do at home that make it really accessible, and it doesn't need to be some fancy brand to do that. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, as a founder, um, the challenges and insurmountable things that come up uh, being an entrepreneur, at least in my company, every day, I feel like I'm bailing water out of a boat with too many holes. Um, I'd love for you yep. to share, you know, just some of the struggles or things you've encountered in your journey. I think that, uh, I mean, you know this as well as I do. I, I think one, it's a, sometimes it's a thankless job. You know, you got, you know, there was someone, I posted something on Instagram a couple of years ago that a friend sent to me that, that said, what does it say? So I'm like, you know, you, you go to work for yourself to not have to work all the time and you end up working like, you know, every waking moment. I'm, I'm, I'm butchering the words, but I mean, the, the sentiment is that it is a 24-hour job, you know, seven days a week, as everyone knows, year after year. I always say overnight success is a decade of 24 by 7. Like, yes. Anyone that says it happens sooner or easier is, is kidding themselves. But I think that, um, and I think some of the things, the mistakes I've made and some of the challenges I've faced is trying to trying to do it all on the same day. And this is something that I've talked about a lot as a woman who is also a wife and a mom is that I really do believe as women, you can have it all, but I don't always think you can have it all on the same day. And I think if you, if you allow yourself a little grace and you say, okay, today I'm really going to be focused on my kids and tomorrow I'm going to be back, you know, traveling for a couple of days that you can be a great mom and a great business person simultaneously. And just prioritize. You know, right now my social life is kind of limited because I'm either at work or I'm with my family, but that's that's a choice I'm making during this period of time. And I know my friends are there and I know on the other end of that, they're still going to be there. Um, so I do think, you know, one of the mistakes we make as women is trying to be everything to everyone, trying to keep everyone happy at all times. And you just, you just can't do that. And so I've been really working as an entrepreneur on becoming much more true to myself in terms of having the confidence not to try to make everyone happy, not to always be liked, you know, even in leading my team to say, like, this is where we're going, and if you're not on this train, the train's leaving the station in five minutes, and I, I can appreciate if you don't want to be on the train. Maybe this isn't your opportunity, but if you're here with me, I need you to be on the train in five minutes, and we're going to go in this direction. And I think that that's something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't do in the beginning. They're, they're, they don't have the self-confidence. They're seeking the, the advice of others. They, they value other people more than their own ideas, and I think that's something that we all stumble. And I think as you as you realize that you're enjoying some success, you start to realize that your gut intuition is great. If you have confidence, you can do anything. Um, and that you, you can have it all, but just 
don't beat yourself up if you're not doing everything perfectly every single day because to your point, every single day you have problems in the company. I mean, that's the other thing I always say. I always say to our CFO, because uh, she and I have such different personalities, she'll say the sky is falling, and I always say the sky is never falling, nor is it ever perfect. Like, it's, there are always some good things that are happening, always bad, and if you just stay the course, you will have success. But it does take an incredible amount of grit and determination and resilience, as you know. Yes. I think someone gave me some good advice and it was basically like, you know, if you know you're failing, do, you know, and you, you know, you're making a mistake, like fix it quickly because it'll allow you a lot more time, you know, in between to get it right. Something like that. I'm, I'm butchering the quote, but what you're saying made me think about that. You know, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast was to share with other women, uh, great advice, great stories. So do you have a piece of advice that has really helped you build you know, your career and your life into what it is. And it doesn't have to be like the only piece of advice, but something that really sticks with you. Well, I think that, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, the, the advice that my both my parents gave me early on, you know, they gave me a couple pieces of advice that have stayed with me over the years. One is that truly you can do anything you want to if you put your mind to it and you're willing to work hard enough. And maybe I'll never be, um, you know, an Olympic athlete because I'm not good enough to be an Olympic athlete. But in terms of business, if you really want something and you're willing to work really, really hard, you can absolutely achieve it. And I think that, I think one of the things that is too bad, and I see this most in more, more in women than in men, is that that women aren't told from an early age that they can do it and they can go for it and they they can be a great woman, they can be a great wife, they can be a great business person or, you know, wife or partner or whatever that they can have, they can have children and be good at those things. I don't think there are enough people telling them that you've got this and you've got everything you need to be successful. And my mother always used this analogy, which I thought was really helpful. And I've tried to impart this information to younger girls, which is, she always said, Greg, you know, you are the cake. Like you build the foundation of the cake. Men, you know, your, your children, everything else will be the icing on the cake, but you need to be confident and happy and you need to be solid in your own foundation. And think about that as the cake. The icing makes the cake sweeter, but the cake still can be pretty delicious on its own. And I think that I've, you know, really strived, really strive and I always have focused on trying to have enough confidence in myself that what I'm doing that is good enough, that I'm financially independent, that I'm working really, really hard. I, I, and I think then I layer on my friends and my family and my husband or whatever. Those are, those are the wonderful things that make the icing for me, but I have to be, you know, confident in who I am as an individual and the work that I'm doing and, and, and that, that I feel good about that with, in the absence of validation from other people or needing other people to make me feel like I'm solid as a person. And I think that was really good advice. And I've used that both in business and I've used it in my personal life. And it doesn't mean that I always feel confident because I can feel super insecure at times as well. Um, but, but I think it, it helps to know that you can do it. And I don't think that advice is important enough on women, especially. I don't think they're told that they can do it and that they've got the chops. I think they're doubted by people all the time from the, the age of their little girl all the way through their marriages and, and, and everything in between. And I think it's, it's time for us to sort of you know, understand that we can do it, that we've got everything we need to be successful. Awesome. Greg Grenfro, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much, Rebecca. Thanks. That was Greg Renfro from Beauty Counter. You can follow her at Beauty Counter or at Greg Renfro. And for those of you who haven't hit the subscribe button, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, review the show, send us a DM, send us questions, what you want to know. And thanks for listening always.